listening to the Mr. Cemetery Show, the podcast that's dedicated to the dark corners of the world. From weird news to historical oddities and the unexplained mysteries, here's your host, Mr. Cemetery. Hello and welcome back to the show, you sick, twisted freaks. This is the Mr. Cemetery Show, the podcast that's dedicated to all the things that are weird, strange, hot, and creepy. But it's mixed with enough wackiness that you won't have to sleep with your nightlight on. I'm your host, Mr. Cemetery. And I'm just Krista. (laughs) This is episode 27, Australia's Greatest Crime Mystery. And in today's episode, we will tell you the story of a well-dressed man who was found on the beach with what was believed to be a natural death, or perhaps even suicide, soon spiraled into one of the greatest mysteries of the modern era. And we will also talk about the haunting true story of a radiological technician whose obsession and infatuation with one of his patients made global headlines after it was discovered that he had been living with her corpse. Weird News brings us a story out of St. Louis, Missouri that involves a woman who claims to see extraterrestrials on a daily basis. Daily, huh? Daily. Not no Carson Daly. He is an alien. I would say. But. I'm going to say he's alien. <laughs> she sees him daily. Hmm. Well, before we start, I'm going to the cooler for a beverage because I don't know about you, but I am parched. Parched? Need a beverage. All right. I'll be waiting. <laughs> While we are here, let's check out what's happening this week in history and maybe some other useless facts. 1542, Jane Boleyn, sister-in-law of King Henry VIII of England, was beheaded in the Tower of London. Oh, she won't do that again. Nope. 1876, Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray apply on the same day but separately for telephone patents. The Supreme Court eventually rules Bell the rightful inventor. I didn't know that. That's a little interesting. I kind of looked into that, and there's some controversy on that. 1950, Walt Disney's animated film Cinderella premieres in Boston. 1861, Abe Lincoln stopped his train at Westfield on his way to Washington to thank 11-year-old Grace Bedell in person for her advice to grow a beard to gain more votes. That's awesome. Right? (laughs) (laughs) 1943, New York Yankee Joe DiMaggio enlists into the U.S. Army. 1885, Mark Twain publishes The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in the United States. 1906, Will Keith Kellogg and Charles D. Boland found the Battle Creek Toasted Cornflake Company, now the multinational food manufacturer Kellogg's. Now Google the reason why cornflakes were invented. All bad. (laughs) I know that story. (laughs) Right? All bad. And they cannot eat cornflakes since that. Not really, yeah. Yeah. Not without thinking about it. Yeah. Before we get back to it, I want to let you know that hunting camels is prohibited in the state of Arizona. So if you live in Arizona or plan on visiting, don't go camel hunting. Well, that's freaking rude. I'm just saying, if you go camel hunting in Arizona, you might get in some trouble. All right. (laughs) Do you have a personal, haunted, spooky, or just plain weird story you would like to share? We'd love to hear all about it. Email us your story at themrcemeteryshow at gmail.com. There's a link in the show notes of this episode to send us your stories, and maybe we'll share it on the next episode. We all know the news can be depressing and scary and just overwhelming sometimes, but sometimes there's just funny and plain weird stories from all around the world, and that's why we bring you this next segment. Woman who has daily encounters says blue-skinned creatures are testing the waters. Lily Nova, 29, said she took to astrophotography out of boredom and made her first sighting in November, followed by another short while later, and things ramped up from there. 
Now, not a day goes by that she doesn't see a floating orb, a metallic ship, or an extraterrestrial being. And she even described what they look like. Lily from St. Louis, Missouri said, My first encounter with aliens and UFOs was very intense. I went outside for some fresh air one night, and I immediately locked eyes with a bright light hovering over our neighborhood. I started investigating and realized it was a UFO. Seconds later, I looked away briefly, and I looked back. There was a second craft that was much closer. I could actually see the triangular shape of the craft. The UFO did some impressive maneuvers to show me that it wasn't a regular aircraft before they disappeared above me. Lily said she was spooked after the first encounter, but since then it's become a common occurrence. She continued, During my encounters, I have also been able to see what the beings have looked like. One of the sightings I saw a girl with a light blue skin. She had no hair, but she was very beautiful. She was wearing a skin-tight gray suit, and I saw her shipmates standing behind her in the same uniform. I have also seen another group of beings with light blonde hair, fair and glowing skin, and bright blue eyes. I believe they are sending me images of themselves telepathically. I think they are easing me into the introduction as it would be such a shocking experience to any human to have an alien walk up to you. Lily believes that the aliens were testing the waters with her after her first shocking encounter as she says they were motioning towards her and she knew she was recording. She thinks that they then gave her some space to process the experience before appearing to her again. Lily added, My encounters have been very close from the start. I could not believe what I was seeing. It was groundbreaking and it piqued my interest in astrophotography even more. I need to find out as much as possible. I abandoned my career as a nutritionist because it was overtaking my passion of finding out more about UFOs and aliens. It's not something I ever expected to happen. The shock of my encounters with UFOs eventually turned to comfort as I had more and more experiences. It felt like I was developing a relationship with them. These experiences have changed everything for me. It has totally changed my view of the world, and I have learned so much from the cosmos and other beings. I have been focusing on spreading awareness of what I found. Lily now believes that she can invite these experiences with aliens and UFOs when she is in a relaxed, open, and blissful state of mind. She's hot. She says that she has even developed a sixth sense and an intuitive gut feeling for when they are going to appear to her. Lily add, whenever I'm out doing my creative passion in astrophotography, this is when I believe I can make contact and invite these encounters. I had been out with a friend who was experienced in meditation, and we set our intentions out for them and to appear to us. And within five minutes of going out to the car, a bright golden orb was moving around to all of our questions. Since the shock wore off, I feel joy, love, and peace. They are such beautiful and positive experiences. Sometimes I even bawl my eyes out crying while it's happening. I believe that they come to me because I believe in them, and I'm open-minded, and I'm welcoming towards them. What do you think? Weird. (laughs) (laughs) She's going to get probed, that's all I'm saying. I don't know. Didn't she say they're blue? Yeah. I think it's the grays that's got the anal fetish. Oh. oh, oh. (laughs) I have no idea. I I, I, I don't know. (laughs) I just heard that once. Lay off the drugs is all I got to say. Drugs are bad. I mean. Kind of sounds like that's what... A little bit of that going on. A little bit. I don't know. She's she's a space hippie. Sounds like. <laughs> I, I have no clue. The Mr. Cemetery Show will return after these messages. We here at the Mr. Cemetery Show would like to invite you to become a Patreon member. There are so many reasons to become a Patreon. Not only are you helping out the Mr. Cemetery Show cover its own costs, but you get exclusive behind-the-scenes content, bloopers and bonus content, dead of the day that we do not post over our Instagram feed, signed photos, discount merch, 
and so much more cool rewards, head over to the show notes of this episode and click the link and sign up today. You know, now's a perfect time to subscribe to the podcast. We're sitting here listening to these commercials. You're not doing anything else. Just go on and subscribe to the show. You know you love us. So what are you waiting for? Are you in the spine-tingling crime stories? The Krista McKibben's Hatchet Man book is for you. It's a chilling tale set in the 1800s about one of America's earliest serial killers, whose disturbing crimes occurred in both Ohio and Maryland. The book also includes a full trial and confession as told by the Baltimore Sun. Hatchet Man by Krista McKibben is available on paperback and Kindle, only at Amazon.com. Now, back to the Mr. Cemetery Show. And we're back. What do you got for us today? Well, today I want to cover the story of the Somerton Man. But a lot of you probably know this one. It's a pretty popular one. I encourage you to hang on to the end because there has been some recent developments in the past year. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, on December 1st, 1948, a man was found dead on Somerton Beach in Adelaide, Australia. The man was clean-shaven, wearing a dry and neatly pressed suit and tie. Oddly, all of the tags of his clothes had been removed and he was found with no belongings or form of identification. His fingerprints were not in any database and no one came forward to identify the man. A post-mortem revealed the man had a strikingly enlarged spleen and internal bleeding in his stomach and liver. There were no indications of violence and no traces of poison. Symptoms of poisoning such as vomiting, diarrhea, or convulsions were also not present. The coroner also found a pastry in his stomach. In the official publication of the investigation, the coroner wrote, I am unable to say who the deceased was and unable to say how he died or what was the cause of death. Did he say what kind of pastry he had in his stomach, though? No, I was actually wondered about that one. I kind of got stuck there with the pastry. That's what I want to know. <laughs> what was he eating? Yes. A month after the body was found, a suitcase was uncovered in the cloakroom of the Adelaide Railway Station. The suitcase dropped off the day before the body was found, contained, among other odds and ends, clothing with the labels removed and a wax thread not sold in Australia, but the type used to repair the trousers found on the body. Many of these objects indicated that the man, whoever he was, had recently been in the United States. The name Keen, ending in E, and Keen, ending in N, were found on some of the items. According to an Adelaide newspaper, authorities concluded the name Keen, spelled K-E-A-N, sometimes with an E, sometimes with not, had been left on the belongings to intentionally obscure the man's true identity. Four months later, in April 1949, police came upon a mysterious clue that had been overlooked. Sewn into the waistband of the man's pants was a secret pocket, which contained a tightly rolled piece of paper with the Persian words, to mom should, typed on it. The paper appeared to be torn from an 11th century book of Persian poems, the Rubiyat of Omar Khayyam. Themes around the Rubiyat center around life's transience and in English, to mom should, roughly translates to the end or finished. The discovery of the secret pocket and its haunting message was enough for coroner Thomas Cleland to declare the man's death was, quote, not natural. On July 23rd, three months after the police discovered the Tamon Shud paper, a businessman who had read about the unidentified body in the paper came to police with a copy of the Rubiot. The man claimed that he found the book in the back seat of his car after parking it near Summerton Beach with the windows down. 
Sure enough, a section had been torn out of the last page of the book that perfectly fit the piece in the unknown man's pants. On the back cover of the book, police discovered five lines of letters, apparently a secret code and what appeared to be a phone number. To this day, the code has never been cracked and the Australian Navy determined it to be virtually unbreakable, explaining there is an insufficient number of letters for definite conclusions to be based on analysis. The letters do not constitute any kind of simple cipher or code. A reasonable explanation would be that the lines are the initial letters of words of a verse of poetry or such like. While the code failed to yield any new leads, the phone number found to be in the back of the Rubiat led investigators to 27-year-old nurse Jessie Joe Thompson's doorstep, just hundreds of meters from where the body was found eight months prior. Thompson admitted to once owning a copy of the Rubiat, but claimed she'd given the copy to a man named Alfred Boxall. Upon investigation, Boxall turned out to be still alive and in possession of a fully intact copy of the Rubiat. By this time, the still anonymous body had been buried, but not before a plaster cast had been made for investigative purposes. According to Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean, when Joe Thompson was shown the cast in hopes of identifying it, she looked like she was about to faint. Nevertheless, Thompson denied knowing the man. Thompson died in 2007, still claiming she did not know the man found on the beach. Now, there's theories about who this man was and what happened to him. The first one is the man was responsible for his own death and killed himself. This could mean he put the paper reading to mom should in his own pocket to be found as a sort of suicide note. Supporting this theory are the similar elements of another suicide, that of immigrant George Marshall. In June 1945, Marshall was found dead in Mossman, Australia after poisoning himself with barbiturates. With his corpse, another copy of the Rubiat. While another dead man turning up in Australia with the same collection of Persian poems may sound like too large a coincidence to overlook, the Rubiat apparently had become quite popular in Australia during World War II. Since the work deals with life and mortality, it's possible both men could have had similar inspiration to have at least a piece of the book with them during their final moments. The next theory, the man was murdered by Russian spies. The body was found at the dawn of the Cold War, and paranoia about Soviet spies loomed large. A few months before the discovery of the corpse, a Soviet embassy spying had been uncovered in Canberra, Australia. A statement given in 1959 by a man who was on Somerton Beach the night the unidentified man claims to have been seen, a man carrying another on his shoulder near the water's edge. In 2013, a theory came out that Joe Thompson, the woman whose phone number was found in the back of that copy of the Rubiat, may have been a Soviet spy. The woman who publicly suggested this theory was none other than Kate Thompson, Joe Thompson's daughter. In a 60 Minutes interview, Thompson said her mother had, quote, a very strong dark side. She said to me she knew who he was, but she wasn't going to let that out of the bag, so to speak. There was always that fear I've thought that maybe she was responsible for his death. According to Kate, she would hear her mother speaking in rushed, quieted Russian to someone over the phone. Her mother also mentioned she was teaching English to newly arrived immigrants from Russia. Kate remembered her mother at one point saying something along the lines of, oh, I can still understand Russian, but she never mentioned where she learned it. Hooked on phonics? Yeah. <laughs> if the Somerton man met his end thanks to Russian spies, whether Joe Thompson was involved or not, there's also the question as to how he died. At the time, a well-known professor, Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks, Proposed that the man had indeed been poisoned, but with an extremely rare variety, which would decompose soon after death. This would, of course, explain the absence of poison found in the corpse. In court, Hicks refused to say the name of the poisons he was referring to aloud, believing they were too dangerous. 
Sir Hicks did, however, write two types of poison down on paper and gave it to the coroner. Digitalis and strophanthin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, sounds right to me. Remember, we talked about that gun that, sh- did we bring that up before? There was a gun that the government made. I think me and you did, but I don't know oh. if we did it on here. Yeah, it shot a little poison ice dart. <laughs> it should be noted that Joe Thompson worked as a nurse and perhaps could have known about those and had access to some rare poisons such as those written down by Hicks. While spies might explain the mysterious code in the back of the Rubiot, there is admittedly no physical evidence Joe Thompson was ever involved with Russians in any capacity much less associated with espionage. Still, one could always argue this only means Thompson was a very good spy. The final and more recent theory says the man was killed as a result of a romantic relationship gone awry. This theory comes thanks to the tireless work of University of Adelaide engineering professor Derek Abbott. Abbott discovered that about a year before the man's body turned up on Somerton Beach, Joe Thompson had given birth to a son named Robin Thompson. Robin grew up to be a professional ballet dancer, which meant it was easy for Abbott to track down photos of the man. Based on photos, Abbott found that Robin had a similar strange ear feature to the Somerton man. Additionally, both Robin and the man found on the beach were missing their incisor teeth, a genetically inherited trait. This information, along with the fact that Joe Thompson was unmarried the year Robin was born, led Abbott to conclude Joe and the Somerton man had a liaison together and she had Robin. By the time Abbott made this connection, Robin had already died. However, Abbott was able to track down Rachel Egan, the biological daughter of Robin Thompson, who was living in Queensland. And what might be the craziest reveal in a story full of strange twists, Abbott and Egan eventually fell in love and got married. In 2018, while inspecting the original plastic cast made of the body and the same one that allegedly made his grandmother-in-law nearly faint, Abbott found three hairs, which he believes could contain DNA evidence of a genetic link to his wife. If the Summerton man was her son's dead father, that could explain Joe Thompson's near fainting upon seeing the plaster cast. While the hairs Abbott discover may not be able to provide a conclusive answer, it's the most promising lead in the case so far. Even if Professor Abbott is able to prove his wife's relationship to the Summerton man, many questions remain unanswered, such as who he was, how he was killed, and why he was left dead on the beach. Joe Thompson, or another man for instance, The one spotted carrying a body on the beach could have been angry at the Somerton man for not taking responsibility for the child that resulted from his love affair. Or perhaps Joe Thompson, the dead man, or even both were spies and weren't supposed to get involved in a relationship. If the man was Robin Thompson's father and Rachel Egan's grandfather, perhaps the biggest question of all is why was Joe Thompson so unwilling to identify the body? In a recent update I was able to find, the Somerton man's body was exhumed in May 2021 for forensic DNA testing. Paternal testing on Rachel shows that her grandfather, whoever he may be, is a descendant of Thomas Jefferson and Native Americans along the East Coast. Hmm, that's interesting. That is interesting, I thought. I yeah. Apparently, would say that he was, her grandfather was an American. Yeah. How do you think he died? I don't know. That's, it's weird. But I, to me, it sounds like poisoning. Yeah. I mean, he had some internal bleeding or he was beat found in the water he got bruises on him i don't think he had external bruises but i think if i mean if you get hit in the stomach right or something didn't it not always any bruising i might be wrong about that but i've heard that i think maybe he died because of the bear claw he ate by the way i'm thinking it was a bear claw i'm could have been he had a pastry yeah so maybe something was in that i don't know but since they managed to exhume the body and maybe they'll be able to find out more Interesting. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know how he died. 
that's yeah it's definitely a weird one yeah i was thinking as you were going along you know maybe you just fell in some water shit happens you know yeah but, but nothing said that he was wet or anything he was just laying there on yeah. the beach laying dead and actually i did kind of leave this out but because i kind of got two different accounts on it there was a couple kids riding horses came across him thought he was sleeping and then when they came back he was still there and they checked him out and realized he was dead but Somewhere in my research, there was just supposedly a guy, he was a boy at the time, with his dog found him, and he actually said, like, he came out and talked about it recently, and he's like in his 80s or something now, and he said his dog had actually peed on the man, and he felt bad about it, but he realized he was dead, he ran back home and told his mom, and his mom called the police. Dude, mine just went out there, watched sunrise, and just died. Shit happens. Yeah. I mean, pe- sometimes people just drop dead. Yeah. You know, I'm really anxious to see what they turn up. I said it'll probably take a while, be- and they don't know how much DNA they can actually get because the formaldehyde, he was embalmed, kind of degrades yeah. DNA and stuff. So, you know, they maybe they won't be able to get anything, but. I want to know what happened to the pastry. I'm still stuck on the pastry. <laughs> you I'm, would be. I would. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. I don't know. Crazy story. Mm-hmm. Well, my story is. The Coarse Bride of Carl Tanzler. Although history is full of stories of star-crossed lovers and romantic obsessions, few are stranger than that of Carl Tanzler and his infatuation with a young woman named Elena de Hoyos. It was a love affair that persisted not only in life, but also beyond the grave, that has proved that beauty really is the eye of the beholder. Dr. Carl Tanzler was born in Germany in 1877. Although he grew up in Germany, he spent much of his adult life living in India and Australia. Then World War I broke out. He was held prisoner by the British military until the war was over. When he was released, he was barred from re-entering his home country, so he headed to Holland and spent three years living with his mother, until 1926 when he settled to Rotterdam to Cuba and eventually made his way to the United States, settling in Zephyr Hills, Florida, where he was later joined by his wife and two daughters. The next year, Tansler left his family and relocated to Key West, Ray got a job as a radiological technician at the United States Marine Hospital. On April 22, 1930, a 20-year-old Cuban-American woman named Elena de Hoyos was admitted to the hospital where Tansler worked. Described as strikingly beautiful, she had always had her fair share of admirers and had even been married when she was 16, but she was abandoned by her husband after a miscarriage. Tansler was immediately infatuated with her, but to Tansler, it was more than just a simple crush. You see, when he was a child, he claimed to have been visited by visions of the dead ancestor who revealed to him the face of his true love, a face that he recognized as that of Elena. Mm-hmm. As she grew more ill and eventually diagnosed with tuberculosis, Tansler made it his mission to save her. He convinced his superiors to allow him to conduct his own experiment treatments on her. He used all kinds of elixirs and tonics and even had an x-ray machine that he had installed in her home. He also showered her with gifts of jewelry and clothing. She tolerated his infatuation, but by all accounts, it was a one-sided love. Despite the doctor's best efforts, Elena died on October 25, 1932, in her parents' home in Key West. Now, Tanser paid for all of her funeral expenses and hired a mortician to embalm her. He even went as far to build an expensive stone mausoleum for her. But unbeknownst to her family, Tanser retained the only key to the mausoleum for two years he visited the tomb as often as he could. Wow. Creepy guy. Mm-hmm. Rumors about his obsessive visits to her grave grew so rampant that he was even fired from his job. 
After two years of frequent visits, Tansler decided to take his obsession to the next level. And that's not good. In April of 1933, he snuck into the cemetery at night and stole her body, transporting it using a toy wagon. Mm. He brought the body home to begin work on it, preserving it, even though it had already been very badly decomposed. He fitted the face with glass eyes, used wire to hold her bones together, mixed plaster and wax fabric to replace her rotten skin, filled her body with rags to maintain the shape, and made wig out of her own salvaged hair. Gross. <laughs> to top it all off, he applied formaldehyde and perfume. As the corpse continued to decompose, Tandler would constantly replace the decaying skin with silk cloth and soaked in wax and plaster of Paris. He lived with the corpse for almost seven years. During that time, neighbors reported looking through the windows and seeing him dancing with what they thought was a giant doll. They also found it strange that he would frequently buy women's clothing even though he lived alone. To top it all off, he was building a spaceship to fly himself and Elena to the stratosphere, believing that he would rejuvenate her by the radiation. <laughs> In October of 1940, he was finally confronted by Elena's sister. The body was discovered and Tansler was arrested. After a psychiatric evaluation, he was deemed mentally competent enough to stand trial. The trial was a media sensation and drew huge crowds. During this time, Elena's corpse was examined by doctors and according to some reports, they described a paper tube that had been inserted into a vaginal area of the body that was used for sex. Ew. However, these claims have been disputed and it's still unclear whether any necrophilia actually happened, but I don't think it's too far-fetched. Just saying. Yeah. He went that far. Yeah. <laughs> these charges against Tansler were eventually dropped because the statute of limitations had expired on his crimes. After the trial, Elena's body was put on display at a funeral home and over 6,000 people paid to see her. <laughs> when the commotion died down, Elena's body was buried in Key West Cemetery in an unmarked grave. As for Carl Tansler, he moved back near his wife in Pasco County, Florida, but was never able to shake his obsession. Using a death mask of Elena, he constructed life-size effigy of her that maintained in his house until his death in 1952. What do you think about that? I think there's something wrong with Key West. Yeah. Yeah, I have come across some really weird. The one doll story, Robert the Doll, mm -hmm. that's a Key West story. I think there, I think I came across not too long ago about another doll story. There's just been some weird stories coming out of Key West that I've been finding. <laughs> like, too much key lime pie. Something. That's all I'm saying. Weird. That's fucking sick. Yeah. That's all I'm gonna say. That's that's just weird. Guy yeah, definitely have issues. I want to know what happened to the mausoleum though. Like he built it. Yeah. So is there like the mausoleum still there? Because she's buried in an unmarked grave. I couldn't find out. I, I, was, I tried. I need to do more research on that. Yeah, that's strange. Yeah. Strange story all around. I'm sure what they don't want anybody. What about wife? Like, what the hell? She's like, dude, what the fuck? Yeah. What's wrong be... with you? Yeah. Mm. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of the Mr. Cemetery Show. I'd also like to remind everyone that in New York, slippers are banned after 10 p.m. But what if I have to? Go pee at 1 a.m. They're banned. I just got to go After 10 cold feet. Cold feet. Wow. Yes. That's harsh. Yes, it's bad news for those who love rocking some fashionable comfy slippers all day and night around the house. The old law says that slippers are not to be worn after dark in New York. I looked into it, but I could not find why the law is in effect. You know somebody did something extremely stupid Yeah. for this to be a law. <laughs> and I can't figure out why. And it upsets me. But... Do you know what kind of shoes mice wear? No, what kind of shoes do mice wear? Squeakers. Ah. <laughs> <laughs>
Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share with all your friends because we're freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah. Until next time, I'm Mr. Cemetery. And I'm Krista. Remember, kids, stay creepy. See ya!